Alan Minsk, and I welcome you to Arnold Golden Gregory's newest podcast series, I Wish I Knew What I Know Now, Conversations with AGG on FDA Issues. Each month, we hope to release a new podcast for different members of our FDA team. Joining with other members of our AGG colleagues, we'll discuss issues and challenges that we've encountered when assisting clients on business and legal issues relating to a variety of topics, including marketing do's and don'ts, product monetization, and small business user fee waivers. As I said, I am Alan Minsk. I'm a partner, and I lead our firm's food and drug practice group. I am joined by my partner, Mike Burke, who is a partner in our firm's corporate practice, and he also co-chairs with me our pharmaceutical and medical device industry team. So today's episode will focus on quality agreements for FDA-regulated products. And Mike and I will be looking at some of the unique legal issues that we've encountered in our 25-plus years. I've been doing this 27 years. I don't know how long Mike has, give or take 25 years or so, of drafting and negotiating agreements for our pharmaceutical and medical device clients and discuss some of the basics of what should go into a quality agreement. What we're going to do is sort of a back and forth questioning of one another. So Mike, um, we'll get started. And with that, let me uh, ask you the first question. So you do corporate work and you do a lot of uh, cross-border work. How would you best manage the reporting and related timelines that come up when dealing with cross-border quality agreements? And who would you say should be responsible for reporting QA issues to the relevant authority. Thanks, Alan. And, you know, I think in our context, typically we're drafting these quality agreements for, you know, for the pharmaceutical manufacturer or the medical device manufacturer. And I think the second part of that question is probably easier to answer. Um, usually it's going to be the manufacturer in the first instance who's going to have final responsibility uh, and final determination about whether and what to report. Uh, to, in this case, the FDA. Um, but I'll circle back to that um, a bit. But, you know, you're, you're hitting on a, on a point that we deal with. Uh, it's a challenging point that we deal with a lot. I mean, the FDA is clear um, in the relevant regulations about the definitions, uh, say, of adverse events, hit, you know, that, that are applicable to pharmaceuticals and medical devices. They're also very clear on the relevant timelines for when things need to be reported to the FDA. Basically, what you try to think about is, is you, you, sometimes you work backward and think, you know, the final day or the last day a company c- cannot have reported to the FDA is sort of the outer edge of the timing requirement. Um, but typically, you want to have, at least if you're dealing with a QA that's focused on uh, in the U.S. And, and is subject solely to FDA regulations, you know, you generally want to have at least an initial response from uh, a distributor, uh, for example, you know, within, say, 24 hours, 36 hours of, of the relevant event. So the manufacturer and the distributor can triage the issue, identify whether or not it needs to re- be reported, and if so, what needs to be reported. The challenge gets, you know, a little more complex when you start dealing with, um, say, a, a manufacturer in the U.S. and a distributor somewhere in the European Union, you know, on the pharmaceutical side, the definitions, say, of adverse event are somewhat harmonized through the ICH process. That's not necessarily the case for medical devices. And so you do have to spend a little bit of time uh, ensuring that your definition of these triggering events in a QA that crosses borders, especially for medical devices, 
works in, in all relevant jurisdictions, starting with, again, with, with the U.S., uh, you know, in our scenario, U.S. manufacturer that's subject to FDA regulations. Um, most countries, at least from, from what I've seen, either have very similar or slightly more relaxed re reporting requirements in the U.S., but in that case, it's still useful to have that initial report within 24 hours, um, you know, of, of what's called the awareness date. Uh, and then, you know, triage that uh, and, and do the, the appropriate analysis there. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of the, the, the macro way is, is maybe building out something that complies with relevant FDA timelines, but also ensuring that if you're working across borders that um, in complying with the FDA, you're also complying with EMA or, or relevant national authorities. Um, and that all get, gets back to the point who makes the final decision on making a report. Um, you know, if there's a disagreement, say, between a distributor and the manufacturer, generally it should be the manufacturer because they're, they're on the hook in the first instance. You know, both the, the content and timing should be at the direction of the manufacturer. So that's sort of, you know, how I would structure that. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's generally been, been what, we've, uh, what we've done. Let me add something to that, because um, you and I have worked on many agreements, and I know it makes us go crazy, um, is we'll often see words like promptly, or right. as soon as possible, we'll report as soon as possible, we'll report promptly. Is that a biblical promptly? Is that a, uh, you know, what, what does that mean? And certainly when you've got uh, cross-border, where you've got time differences, it can be right. five hours, it can be seven hours, it can be you know, 12 hours, if not more. Right. So, you know, what does that mean? And are you talking, you know, is it business days? Is it calendar days? So, you know, that's where you a corporate lawyer have certain insights, what's kind of best business practices, if you will. And then I won't say me, I'll say more my team. I'll give credit to my team. But there are regulatory obligations where it may be the regulations, if it's, let's say it's FDA, it may be, you know, three days, it may be five days, whatever. And so you need to make sure that you back that in. So if there's investigations, you don't want to simply say, well, I'll notify you promptly because that's too vague. But you don't want to say if it's a 72-hour um, notice, you know, you have 72 hours and then you, can, you don't give the other side enough time so they can investigate and review. So you got to build that in. And that's why it's important that the QA group talk with the, you know, the in-house counsel or outside counsel and that everyone's on the same page because it is an FDA-regulated product, but there's also regulatory consideration. Right. I mean, you, and you and I share that same disdain for promptly. I mean, and, and, and you know, the, 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 we dealt with this with, with one client recently who had a QA that stretched to Singapore. And, and the question is, well, what's the awareness date? And you say, well, it's the, you know, it's the day it, it, it's measured on the time zone of the reporting party, in this case, you know, the distributor, the sub-distributors. Um, but you're right. I mean, that really does put some stress on the QA team. You know, if, if it's, you know, if you got that 72 hours, you don't, you don't give away 71 hours to, to get the report in. One thing that I think you and I have spoken about is sort of that this threshold question, you know, do I even need a quality agreement? Yeah. And, and what happens if I don't have one? I mean, is the yeah. world's not going to end, but yeah. no. somebody's not going to be happy. Right. No, it's, it's a great question. Um, and often people will try to throw it in sometimes to a supply agreement, maybe a couple of provisions. I, I would suggest, and I think best practice is that you have it as a separate agreement. There is no FDA requirement that you have a quality agreement. 
There are guidance documents that FDA talks about quality agreements, what should go into a quality agreement from an FDA side, separate from you know, some of the things that Mike might talk about from a corporate side. I think it's best industry practice. I think it's certainly FDA expectation. Now, I can't cite a chapter and verse that says you must from an FDA standpoint. I think FDA is going to expect it. I think it's best industry practice. I think you would be, um, I don't want to say stupid because when my kids were young, we were told not to say stupid. I would just say ill-advised. Um, although my kids are now teenagers, so I guess I can say it would be stupid not to have a quality agreement. Um, I think that the, the risks um, are a couple fold. One is they're likely going to be um, quality compliance gaps. If we don't lay out who's responsible for what, if we don't lay out who's responsible for investigating, you know, who's going to handle certain corrective actions and, you know, like a recall and, you know, certain things that are regulatory in nature, and that's not clearly defined, inevitably there's going to be a problem. And in fact, FDA has issued warning letters, not because a company did not have a quality agreement, but they've noted you, you were deficient on good manufacturing practices on the drug side or quality system regulations on the device side. And in essence, but for had you had a quality agreement, you might not have had this problem. Not, oh, if you had a quality agreement, all your problems would have been solved. But simply, it would have not, you probably should have had a quality agreement. Or you had a quality agreement and it was deficient in some way, and that probably led to your problem. So one is you're going to have quality gaps. And kind of related is there's going to just be lack of communication. It's going to be a little bit of the Tower of Babel, and that you're going to be kind of two ships passing in the night. You know, you, you went to the trouble with the supply agreement or the business agreement to get into the weeds of, you know, who's going to handle indemnification, who's going to handle, you know, damages and costs and all of that. And yet when it came to the FDA regulatory compliance, we didn't even think to get into the weeds of the regulatory issues and the quality issues. And so, again, I think the concern is that you're inevitably going to have FDA risks. You might ultimately have product liability risks because if you end up having FDA compliance issues, that may lead to product liability issues or you know, manufacturing uh, problems. And as I said before, FDA has issued guidance on that. So again, while that's not legally binding on the agency or you company, I think it's certainly what FDA is expecting. And they've also laid out for you what their expectations are in such a quality agreement. So again, I think it would be a good, would be advisable. But are they, I mean, if FDA inspects your facility are they going to look for the quality agreements as part of that process it, are they going to even you know yeah they, they might they might it's not a fait accompli that they will um but they may and i would say more likely than not they may not necessarily want to read through it because they're not lawyers and they you know and they're not gonna you know whereas and where to for and all that kind of stuff but they may want to fi figure out did you have a quality agreement i see that you were relying on a vendor do you have a quality agreement? Um, I see that you're using a contract manufacturer for this. You're a virtual company. You're contract, using contract manufacturers for this. You're contract packager, contract labeler. Do you have a quality agreement? I'd like to at least look at it. Maybe they'll look at the matrix in the back, which identifies who's responsible for what. In essence, it's, it's a little bit of a halo effect. You know, that idea that if you walk into someone's, you know, uh, facility and if it looks clean, you probably have a pretty good feel about it. Or if someone's well-dressed, you might feel better about them. And conversely, if you walk into a pigsty, you, you may not quite feel so good about that facility. Or, you know, if you go in and you meet somebody and they don't look well kept, they may be the smartest person in the world and very professional, but you may just have a bad image of them. And it, it, whether that's right or wrong, that's just kind of the first image. 
So I think that it's fair for FDA to ask for a quality agreement, whether or not they read every page, but it is fair game for FDA to look at it because FDA has a right under the statute to, to look at a lot of things that bear on the you know, production, the manufacturing, and are you and otherwise complying with, uh, you know, with FDA's uh, you know, general requirements. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so now let me throw it back to you. Um, we talked a little about cross-border quality agreements. What would be the governing law? I mean, so, you know, I have a facility in the United States, but I'm doing, let's take that Singapore, you know, example. So I'm in the United States. Um, I'll, I'll throw this, uh, this weird fact pattern. I've got a facility in the United States. I'm based in Germany, but my, but the manufacturing facility is in Singapore. So I got three different sites. Okay. So one is what should be the governing law and do I need to think about the FDA considerations? Again, I may need to think about other government agencies, but we're thinking about FDA because that's what I do and that's what my group does. Um, and that's where you and I often you know, collaborate. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I mean, we, we do see a lot of this stuff where supply chains are crossing multiple borders and creating you know, choice of law questions that we thought we were going to get away from once we graduated law school, but um, you know, here we are. But, yeah, in, you know, in that scenario, you know, you're talking about a range of, you know, different agreements that you're going to have in place. I mean, you've got distribution, manufacturing, or supply manufacturing, things like that. For the QA piece of it, um, you know, there's definitely going to be, I mean, assuming for a moment that this this hypothetical company has product that is, you know, on the market in the U.S., then, you know, we're going to need to ensure that whatever we put in the quality agreement uh, complies with the relevant FDA requirements. And that's also going to be true, you know, if they're on the market in Singapore, if they're on the market in China, if they're on the market in, you know, inside the European Union, you just have to make sure that each, you know, sort of each reporting mechanism is covered. you know, the, the, with the QA side about the governing law, you know, I think you can sort of split the baby a little bit. You know, you can say that on the one hand for matters related to, you know, FDA interpretation or, or QA issues related to uh, having the product on the market in the U.S., those matters will be subject to U.S. law. Um, separate from that, if there's just a straight up you know, a contractual dispute between the parties, you know, then you start getting into that, you know, choice of law issue about, you know, which, which, you know, where do you, where do you, uh, you know, which party has a, a, a better claim to jurisdiction, et cetera. But, you know, I think you don't want to, you know, dive too deep on the weeds necessarily on the choice of law question, as long as you're building in a mechanism that can respond and keep, the company in compliance with whatever QA requirements are subject to um, keeping in mind that, you know, company operating on that type of scale is going to ha- you know, be subject to laws and regulations in 10 or 15 different countries. Well, here's one for you. Given you've, you've, you've done this for longer than a half an hour. Um, what, what continues to surprise you? when you see QAs or when you see companies approach us yeah. to QAs? Oh, there's so many. I have more than <laughs> now. And, and don't well, say prompt. Well, one or two, 
would be, I think sometimes people do the quality agreement and they think they're done. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, well, Mike and Alan wrote a quality agreement and they prepared one, so we signed it, we're done. That's the end of it. Well, you know, to quote Seinfeld, you know, the Seinfeld episode, anyone can take a reservation, you know, it's the hold. Okay, well, anyone can write a quality agreement, but now you've got to execute. And you actually have to make sure that people are following it. And there's auditing and there's follow through. And, you know. So that's one. The second is what I sort of call the, you know, you know, creative, creativity is one thing and stupidity is another. You know, often, you know, people try to come up with sort of what I call the Lennon-McCartney view is all of a sudden they decide that they want to you know, write their own definitions. Well, there are a lot of statutory and regulatory definitions that FDA gives you. So don't come up with something when FDA gives you something. So if there's a definition of adverse drug experience or medical device report or recall, you know, don't start saying, well, that's just too legalistic. You know, I'm sorry, but that's, that's the definition that FDA is going to look at. That's the definition that both of you should be looking at. So really what I think you should be doing is using those definitions. Or if you want to say, as described in 21 CFR, whatever the appropriate regulatory definition would be, or 21 United States Code, whatever the statutory provision would be. So that'd be another one that, that kind of gets me, you know, ticked, if you will. You know, I would also have that um, sometimes we'll see with the matrix at the end. And so Mike and I have an agreement and, you know, um, we're going to just, we're going to divvy up responsibilities. And so you have an X in one, one column and, you know, to, to show primary responsibility. I don't necessarily mind if you want to have, I can live with having an X in Mike's column and X in my column, except now that doesn't tell me who the primary responsibility is. I think that concept was, well, we're going to share it. That's wonderful. I'm all for love and peace and understanding, quote Elvis Costello, except someone's got to take the lead. Okay. So if you want to say, Mike's got the lead and I'm going to help you, or I've got the lead and Mike's going to help me. But when you have both boxes, then inevitably you're going to have people pointing at one another. And, you know, keep in mind, I would also say that, you know, who is responsible and related is who's responsible for the FDA related functions. At the end of the day, the sponsor or the application holder is ultimately responsible. You can delegate as much as you want to try from a contractual standpoint. But at the end of the day, FDA is going to look at the application holder or the sponsor. So they're ultimately on the hook. Um, and I guess maybe one of my, I'll say it's my, um, two, maybe two last things, is one is I'm, I'm surprised at how infrequent um, quality assurance is brought in, let me say to say this, how they're brought in at the last minute. Yeah. Um, you know, so everyone's working on the agreement. They've got either in-house counsel or outside corporate counsel working on it. And all of a sudden someone says, you know, I'll ask, well, has quality look, looked at this? Oh, yeah, we plan to give it to them. When? Well, we're, going to, we're closing on Tuesday. We're going to give it to them Monday afternoon to just see if they got anything. Well, my, my goodness, they're ultimately in charge of this to some extent from the standpoint of compliance. You're going to dump this on them and say, by the way, you've inherited this quality agreement. You didn't get a chance to look at it or have any comments on it or see if it's even practical, but now you've inherited this. It doesn't make sense to me. I understand they may not be lawyers. They may not be business people, but they're ultimately responsible for executing this. Let me ask you, um, I guess, one last question. How can we harmonize the definitions in a quality agreement across during different jurisdictional lines? I think you noted before, you know, there may be an EU definition, there may be an FDA definition, there could be, you know, Japanese definition. Um, what do you do about that? Or do you need to worry about that? Maybe, maybe you don't have to worry about that. If you're talking about, you know, a quality agreement that's wholly inside the U.S., you still need to, you know, like you said, you need to 
basically copy and paste or reference the relevant FDA definition. Um, and then also include in the definition language that conforms the, de you know, your definition, uh, conforms the definition in the quality agreement to the relevant FDA counterpart as it may, as that counterpart may be amended or modified from time to time. So you're not going in, you know, every few years and tweaking the FDA definitions. You know, it's a bit easier on the, on the, on the pharmaceutical side because ICH, you know, has a process where they've harmonized most of the quality and pharmacovigilance related um, definitions, again, for pharmaceuticals across the U.S. and the EU uh, and other jurisdictions. And so typically what we would do there, you know, uh, is, to, is to say, okay, adverse event, here's the FDA definition. It's going to be very, very close linguistically to, between the FDA and the ICH. Um, and then uh, reference the ICH, say, you know, we're intending for this definition as used in this quality agreement to comply with both the FDA term and the ICH term. Um, and that, again, you know, gives you harmonization where, you know, where the countries have joined the ICH process. It's a little more difficult on the device side because there, there isn't much ICH work uh, if any, on the device side to try to harmonize uh, relevant definitions there. But you do need to um, harmonize as much as you can. But I don't want to suggest that harmonization means that we somehow uh, incorporate a definition that's less precise or less stringent than what the relevant FDA definition would be. It's like you said before, you know, the sponsor of the manufacturer, you know, whoever holds the, the 510K, whoever holds the, um, you know, the application is going to be on the hook for it. And so you don't want to say, you know, sorry, we were, you know, we referenced um, an EMA definition for this one issue that's less stringent than the FDA. You know, the FDA is not going to be very happy with that. Um, but you do need to provide an opportunity to, you know, when you're working across borders to, to comply with multiple regulatory regimes. Um, and so that's, again, where the harmonization comes into play. I would just add, you know, you talk about ICH. There could also be ISO, though. Right. The other that, side. Yeah. So I just want to point that out. Um, let's maybe ask if there's one last uh, thing that you, any words of wisdom, last words of wisdom, and 25 words or less. 25 words. Well, because I can't do that. But well, I would say don't, don't use prompt. I would pick up on, on something you said just before, which is, you know, it's, it's all well and good to go into a quality agreement thinking everybody's going to work together on something, but there has to, even when you're working together and when, you, when you're teamed up with, say, a distributor, there has to be a lead company taking action. Um, and, and, and that's almost always going to be, um, you know, the approval holder, uh, manufacturer, what have you. Um, the other piece of this, um, somewhat related to that, is just because, say, your distributor is making a, a QA-related filing or disclosure to a non-US you know, FDA equivalent doesn't mean that you should be kept in the dark. You should be able to see, review, comment, 
uh, and approve uh, any communications between, again, we're using a distributor in this context, but a distributor uh, and a foreign government authority. I think that gets missed a lot. Right, and the only other things I would say, just I would repeat one of the things I said, which is to try to be proactive and early and get the right people involved up front, which would be internal, so it's QA, it's your business people, it's your in-house counsel. And I would also include, you know, Mike and I get involved and, and, you know, Mike tries to include me or my team very early on. But while Mike's done a lot of these agreements and certainly knows FDA terms and, you know, has stated Holly in, he's also aware that he's not a food and drug lawyer and I'm not a corporate lawyer. And so I think it's important for people to recognize right. there may be people to, to bring involved, both at your company and, and outside. So I think it's important to do that early so you don't have last minute, you know, fire drills. Um, and then the only other point I would bring is sometimes we get questions, how often should you, you know, review the quality agreements or update them? And I would say, you know, you can always make a good product better. I probably would look at the quality agreements at least once every two years, maybe more. Again, there's no requirement that I'm aware from an FDA perspective that you have to update them. But what I would say is that maybe when you've had a recent, um, you know, uh, deal, if you will, a recent quality agreement, maybe you, you'll you step back and debrief afterwards what worked, what didn't work. And you might say, hmm, you know, we learned from that other company that they really into that. And, you know, that was, that was a pretty good edit that they had. And maybe we should be considering that. Or we realize that, that on further reflection, based on past experiences where things didn't go so well, that we had gaps in our quad agreement, this is what we need to make sure we put in our quad agreement. So sometimes you learn from past mistakes what to do differently. And sometimes from a current agreement and a current deal, you may realize, hmm, I can update and make a good product even better. So those would be some other suggestions. All right, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate uh, your input here. We hope that you found this discussion informative. As you can probably imagine with a you know, 20 to 30 minute podcast, we can't cover everything that there is in a quality agreement, but we've tried to touch on some of the topics that, that come across our desk. Um, also, none of this should be construed as legal advice. If you have any questions or you would like to submit feedback or topic suggestions for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to either Mike or me. Mike can be reached at uh, michael.burke, B-U-R-K-E, at A-G-G.com, Arnold Goldman Gregory, A-G-G.com, or me, alan, A-L-A-N, dot Minsk, M-I-N-S-K, at A-G-G.com. Obviously, you can find our contact information on our bios on the website, agg.com. Future podcast episodes will be distributed through our monthly FDA newsletter, as well as the HG website and social media pages. If you want to be added to our newsletter, you can also reach out to me, Alan, and I can also make sure you are added. And again, thank you for joining us today. I hope you found it useful. <laughs>